Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and this is Redlines. My guest today is Ali Bargas. He's a journalist with Kausachun News in Bolivia. We're here in La Paz, the political capital of the country, not the official capital. That's a story for another day. But Ali, I'm so glad to finally meet you and to be able to spend this time with you in Bolivia. No, likewise. It's been great having um, you guys here and showing you know, the wonders that Bolivia holds. <laughs> which are many, and it was emotional for all of us to witness the victory of MAS, the Movimiento Socialismo, on Sunday. Many have framed this overwhelming victory as the Bolivian people voting out fascism at the polls. Is the story that simple? Of course not. Um, Bolivians had to fight, actually, in the streets just for the right to vote a few days ago. The elections were supposed to be held on May the 3rd. They got delayed. They're supposed to be held in June, delayed again. In September the 6th, delayed again. And so people realized that what was going on was that the government didn't want to hold elections. They knew they were behind in the polls. And yes, specifically, was a distant third uh, at that time. And they wanted to rule indefinitely uh, through force alone. This is, of course, a government that was never elected. So people, um, anger grew. And then in early August, when they announced another suspension of the elections, people came out uh, in an extremely organized way in a general strike. There was a huge uh, workers' march in El Alto, which is the city connected to where we are now, where it was decided that this mass meeting, that uh, all out, you know? And what a general strike means in Bolivia is not just that people stop working or stay at home. It means that people block all the key strategic highways of the country, and this took place in every single department, every single region, uh, campesino groups, the indigenous groups, uh, the, the sort of Workers' Union Federation, which is the COP, the Central Obrera Boliviana. And it was a total shutdown of the country. Uh, there was instances of actually people uh, some, in some areas of the country, near La Paz, Achacachi, they were armed. Um, in, a, in a few points, and the government was talking about terrorism, and that they would have to intervene. So, militarily attack, sort of military, militarily take back the country, you know, um, which would have been an incredibly difficult task because this was a movement that spanned, as I said, every single region of the country. Um, and it was only after that that the mass managed to win guarantees for elections. And it's the, it's the only reason people were able to go out and vote. During that movement, in fact, there were even more radical sections uh, outside the mass who were calling for the immediate overthrow of the government, uh, where, but the mass, uh, especially Evo Morales, was very clear that, you know, we want to take power peacefully, we'll use the social struggle um, to get there, but, you know, we, we're from the culture of peace and we want to get to power like we did in 2005 through elections. So that's how the mass, you know, the movement towards socialism was founded with the idea that you, the social struggle and the electoral struggle have to go together. They can't go apart because throughout Latin American history, you've had social struggle without electoral participation, guerrilla groups, this sort of thing. And that, that has led to victory in very few places. In a lot of places like Colombia, has led to protracted civil wars, uh, repression, etc. But likewise, if you just take an electoral approach without that social base, without that social struggle, well, you'll go the way of a million left-wing parties that you have in every country around the world. Maybe you do well, one or two elections disappear a couple of years later. 
And that's the history of the Bolivian left as well. There's numerous left-wing parties that have done very well electorally, didn't win, but then disappear a few years later. But the mass is something much deeper than that because they combine electoral participation with permanent social struggle on the ground, uh, in the indigenous communities, in workplaces. And that's something that's been going throughout this whole year. And without that struggle, this, this moment would have, would have never come. Because without that struggle, the mass would have disappeared once you start persecuting a few of its leaders. Evo Morales is gone. Um, Luis Arce had numerous charges invented against him. The leading Senate candidates were being persecuted. If the mass was just an electoralist party, it would have disappeared with that. Gone into hiding, you know, gone the way of many parties in Latin America that have gone extinct. And last year's coup, which brought the Añez government into power, was legitimized largely by a report put forward by the Organization of American States, which accused MAS of voter fraud. That report has been debunked by several institutions, including MIT. But how did Sunday's results specifically damage that report's credibility even more? So many ways. I mean... Evo Morales won last year with just over 10%, for 10.3, 10.4, something like that. And that was called electoral fraud. And now Luis Arce has won with well over 20%, up to 30% it could reach by the end of today. And we have the official results maybe tomorrow. Um, but something else that's quite interesting, I think it was highlighted by the Center for Economic and Policy Research, also by the CELAG think tank, was that the OAS in their report listed a number of places in rural areas where they believe fraud took place, where there were irregularities. Um, and actually, they compared the figures from then and now. And actually, in all of those precincts, in all of those sort of voting centers, the mass got a higher vote than they did in 2019. So that what they're saying is that the mass committed electoral fraud to inflate that vote then. But now, in an election held by a hostile government, they got an even higher score. Some places where they, the mass got 84%, now they're getting 95%. So how can uh, the whole discourse around fraud is kind of, is beginning to dissolve, is beginning to sort of uh, wither away in the sort of public consciousness. People are starting to realize, you know, how, how could there have been fraud if they've come back even stronger now? Absolutely. How do you think average Bolivians responded to seeing figures such as Luis Almagro, the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, congratulating them on this vote? Well, I mean, Evan Morales' daughter responded to him saying, you know, uh, keep, your, keep your congratulations to yourselves, you know, for your own dignity and for our dignity. But at the end of the day, I think Bolivians are relieved. They're relieved that they've managed to win without, uh, well, so far, they managed, to win. they managed to win to a point where even the top sections of the military are now having to distance themselves from the government where the, you know, the US State Department is having to congratulate them. That's how overwhelming the victory is. When you get to that point where, they feel, where your enemies feel like they can't attack you anymore, that's, that's, that's like hegemony, right? That's like you've achieved um, a momentum that's unstoppable. So I think people are very relieved. And people thought that this would be a much longer struggle. People were very prepared to go back to what was going on in August, total general strike, indefinite, you know, a situation where people would have to give their lives like they did at the start of the year. Um, so to have won so overwhelmingly is a huge relief. We'll, you know, obviously we've got to see the masses. Luis Arce is not president yet. 
the mass hasn't taken power yet, it's not going to take power till December. A lot can happen in that time, so people, maybe people are a bit too relaxed, but you know, people are very aware of what the government could do between now and then. As someone who spent the last year in Bolivia since the coup and, and the takeover, what do you believe some of the main expectations will be from the MAS of the new government? There's huge expectations and they're going to be difficult to meet because there's a huge, the number one issue, obviously, the number one priority for the MAS is the economic crisis, rebuilding the economy. You know, for 14 years, Bolivia went from being the poorest country in the region into its fastest growing economy through the economic model built by Luis Arce when he was economy minister, which includes the nationalization of natural resources and not just natural resources, but strategic industries and then using those profits to invest in infrastructure, state development, um, social welfare programs, things like this. And all of that sort of economic base infrastructure that's been built up has been largely destroyed in just a year, in fact. Um, and um, this is before COVID-19 hit, that all the, the key state development projects like the uh, industrialization of lithium, industrialization of natural gas, the, the plant in Bula Bula, Orion, producing uh, ammonium, fertilizer, and things. All those development projects that was led by state-owned companies have been paralyzed. If you go to Uyuni, which is where they were processing the lithium, producing batteries, producing cars, those factories are now closed. Um, the factory I mentioned producing ammonia using natural gas in Bula Bula in the tropical of Cochabamba, that's been closed since the coup. That had thousands of workers, skilled, you know, industrial workers working there now out of a job. Um, and there's a number of other key infrastructure projects, trains in Cochabamba, but it just shows that they, the state, the Kuruk government didn't believe in state-led development. They withdrew from the economy, and then you had an economic recession before the pandemic hit. Then the COVID-19 hit, and then they used it, they saw it, they saw the political opportunities of keeping everyone locked at home, and they jumped at it, and they imposed a sort of total lockdown, rigid lockdown when there was only one or two cases in the country but they didn't provide any economic support for the majority of the country that works in the informal economy you know if you work in the informal economy you aren't going to have an employer that's paying you or that can offer some sort of payment during this time if you're someone who works in a market and then suddenly no one's allowed to come to the market you go hungry and the government didn't provide any support for those people so then what happens consumer demand disappears what happens after that small businesses economic activity disappears, and now you get to where we are now, where unemployment has more than tripled. By July, unemployment had tripled, so by now it would be uh, an even higher amount. So there's an extraordinary economic crisis going on. I should mention as well that the key state uh, industries in gas and lithium as well have been stripped, stripped bare. So it's going to be a huge task rebuilding that, and that's the main reason that the mass won. It's the main reason. There's a obviously a cultural identitarian allegiance to the mass. But the main reason was that people felt, people had the experience. However much the media in this country would you know, attack the mass or portray the economic uh, growth of the past few years as illusory, the fact is that people lived it in their, in their actual lives. So however much you lie, however much propaganda there is, you can't break people's actual experiences. And compare, people also have experience to when Carlos Mesa was in government. Carlos Mesa was the main uh, right-wing candidate, pro-coup candidate in this election, and he was the president 2003 to 2005. 
So a majority of voters in this country experienced what he was like in government. They experienced the moments when he had to take out loans from the IMF to pay teacher salaries. That's an awful situation to be in. You know, it's, if you're a private individual, you have to take out loans from the bank just to pay your bills or pay your rent. That's a very bad situation. It's one thing to take out loans to maybe set up a, your own business or something. That's an investment. And that's what, that's what uh, was happening in the government of Evo Morales. They accused him of being in the pocket of China or Russia for taking out loans of China. But those loans were for infrastructure investment, for investment in these sort of key state development projects, factories, industries, something that brings a return to Bolivia. Whereas what Carlos Mesa was doing was taking out loans just to pay the basic costs of the state. That's an incredibly uh, economically disastrous position to be in. So people have lived through that. So however much spin, however much media, you know, propaganda there is, people have, <laughs> have lived it in their daily lives. And I imagine some sort of truth and reconciliation for the crimes committed by this coup government will be a major part, or at least a desire, an expectation of the people after after mass takes power. Yeah, that's, that's another key priority, is justice for the massacres, the persecution that took place. Uh, the, the words that have always stuck with me is the words of Leonardo Losa. He's a union leader. He's now a senator for Cochabamba. And at a rally that I was at, he said, we're not, we know, we're, not, we're of the culture of peace. We're not here to take revenge. We're not here to you know, settle scores. But we're not going to forget nor forgive those who made us cry. And he's from the tropic of Cochabamba, uh, the Chapare region, the most organized section of the mass. And it was those people that were killed in Sacaba. Um, 10 people were killed that day on 15th of November last year while protesting for democracy, for the return of Evo Morales, and those wounds are still there. In most of the federations of that region, they have people who have been killed, even more who are still injured, who are still, still in hospital now, unable to pay their bills. The union members, like their comrades in the unions, try and help them uh, fund their hospital stays. But it's an incredibly um, difficult situation. So people, that's the number two demand of the social movements. It's justice for the massacres, Specifically, look away Arturo Murillo, the interior minister, and um, the minister of defense, Fernando Lopez, the president, Añez, and the generals who are coordinating with the paramilitary groups. Because in, in the massacres of Sacaba, the um, far-right paramilitary group, Resistencia Juvenil Cochala, were there, armed by the police, working with the police to carry out the massacre. So there needs to be uh, justice for the massacres and for the paramilitary activity that took place with the backing of the state. While we hear a lot about the MAS, the Movimiento Socialismo element of the party, the second aspect of its name, IPSP, or a political instrument for the sovereignty of the people, isn't emphasized as much outside of Bolivia. So what would you tell people the significance of that aspect of the party is? It's key, and in fact, in, in a lot of rallies that I've been at, they only refer to it as the political instrument. They don't talk about the mass, they talk about, long live the political instrument. And that's because the movement towards socialism, Masi PSP, is not a political party, a traditional political party, sort of left-wing political party. It's not an organization you can sort of go online and you know, fill out your bank details and join as an individual. In fact, it's impossible to join as an individual. You can only join through being affiliated to a social movement. And the mass 
the leadership of the mass is just a committee of the social movement leaders, uh, which is the main social movements of the country. That is the National Campesino Rural Workers Confederation, uh, the National Women Indigenous Women's Confederation, and two or three other in indigenous groups on a national level. Um, it's a coalition, a coalition of social forces. Um, and to participate in a party, you have to be part of those movements. And that's the, what I mentioned earlier, the organic strength of the mass, why the mass hasn't been able to disappear despite persecution, despite being massacred, being arrested, being, you know, uh, targeted. It's because it's, it, it, it doesn't consist of one or two leaders with good ideas or good politics. It consists of a mass of people organised in their daily lives. Um, but the most important thing, I think, to understand the mass is, the, is its history. It grew out, firstly, of the struggle against the US military presence in the Chapada region. That was where Evo Morales was a union leader. And in that region, they decided that, you know, it's not enough for us as indigenous people to just talk about, oh, you know, there's issues of our land, we're being discriminated against, oh, this, this river in our community is being contaminated, we have to stop it. No, we have to move out of that defensive struggle and into offensive struggle to take power. You know, we can't just ask for our rights, we have to actually take power. That's the only way we can ensure, um, ensure, ensure respect for ourselves, is by governing ourselves. And from, that, from the Chapari region, they went out to the rest of the country and built to the other social movements in the rest of the country. They affiliated, more and more movements affiliated. But precisely with that argument, we're not a party, we're not a political party, we're a political instrument for these movements, is, yeah, is a weapon with which we participate in politics and eventually take power. And that's why the mass is a, is a force that can't be beaten in Bolivia. Because the right-wing parties, what are they? What do they represent? They're, Every year, every two years, they change names, they change alliances. That's because there's alliances of two, three people. Juntos, which is the party of Añez, already doesn't exist. It was created in February or March, and already it doesn't exist. They'll create a new party. Because it's just two or three individuals making some corrupt deals. And of course, in, with time, you know, they get swept away. But the mass is the only party that has stood in every election since 2002. It's the only party that stood in every election since then because it represents real social forces that took the, started with union struggle, social struggle, and then moved into the political struggle to take power. That's the key. How do you believe Luis Arce will differ from his predecessor, Evo Morales, in terms of governing style and policy, if you think there are, will be major differences? Well, that's something that I think... Bolivian media and a lot of international media are trying to play up that uh, um, there's going to be big differences. They're hoping that Arce will be someone who moves, moves to the right. They've, they're taking comments by Arce, which Evo made himself, that Evo, of course, won't be in the next government. They think, oh, look, he's going to move away from what Evo was doing. But no, that's not true. Luis Arce was the key number two, number three person in Evo Morales' government for the whole of the past 14 years. Um, in terms of governing style, very different, of course. Evo Morales is a union leader. He came up from the rank and file, um, whereas Luis Arce is, uh, is part of the middle class. He was educated in the, in, in the UK. He's in this sort of expert economist. But he's as well, he's a socialist. Before joining the government, before becoming economy minister, he, held, um, he had a very important sort of study circle here in La Paz 
called the Los Duendes, which was sort of a Marxist economic study circle where they drew up plans about how you can build an economy post-neoliberalism. That's why he was chosen by Evo Morales, well, chosen by the vice president at the time, Garcia Linera, to join the government. He was moving in the same sort of, uh, sort of Marxist intellectual circles. Before that, he was a member of the Socialist Party One, which is a sort of historic party that doesn't really exist anymore, but was very important in the 80s and 70s. Um, so he comes from a different class background, different political tradition to Evo Morales, but he's from now, they've developed the same political tradition, which is the process of change and the economic model um, that they both govern with. Right-wing candidate of the Creemos party, Luis Camacho, was facing a lot of pressure to drop out of the race in order to consolidate opposition to Mas, the support for the opposition to Mas, under the neoliberal centrist candidate, Carlos Mesa. We now see that it, it looks as though Mas would have won even if all of Camacho's support had been thrown behind Mesa. But why is the rise of Camacho important within the Bolivian political context? It's, uh, it's very interesting. When the coup took place, I remember being very surprised at the popularity that Camacho had. Camacho was the kind of leader of the street movements, the sort of middle class, violent protest movements that destabilized the country and created the conditions in which the coup could happen. Um, he hoped that after the coup that he'd have his position in power and he was given certain, his allies were given certain ministries, but then he, he's a loose cannon. He's a, he's a thug, he's a violent person and they saw him as a dangerous element they pushed him out of the government. And now he, he took this like, very confrontational stance as like, oh, we're the real sort of uh, revolution. We're the real sort of right-wing forces in the country. These people are a bunch of sellouts. And um, what's happened now is very interesting. He's massively damaged the right. Because there's, uh, there's always been the cultural regional divide in Bolivia, especially within the oligarchy, between the sort of... Uh, enlightened liberal oligarchy here in La Paz and the kind of uh, more brutish, racist, violent landowning elites in Santa Cruz uh, in the east of the country. And Camacho represents that tradition and Carlos Mesa as a sort of uh, more well-mannered liberal figure represents the former tradition. I guess it's similar to the United States where you have, uh, as I understand it, sort of coastal elites that you know, maybe look at the oligarchy in different parts of the country and see them as sort of brutish and thuggish and things like this. Um, so the rise of Camacho has destroyed the kind of right-wing unity that existed at, at the time of the coup. And the fact the election results showed that he won Santa Cruz of a landslide. And Carlos Mesa got 17% in Santa Cruz. So that has destroyed the possibility of a united right-wing opposition. Um, now they're just divided culturally, regionally, into two blocks, and that will, that will massively benefit the mass. While the people have won a massive popular victory here in Bolivia, the same military and the same police responsible for last year's coup and the subsequent violence are still in place. How can Arce and the MAS begin to confront that issue? <laughs> it's going to be the most difficult question, obviously. In, at this moment, at the time of filming this interview, obviously, Luis Arce is not going to be wanting to say anything. The military and the police are in charge of this transition. Luis Arce is not in power till December. 
So they're going to be very careful to not trigger another coup, a second coup. That's been a threat throughout this whole year, the possibility of a kind of Fujimori-style self-coup. Um, but we, I think we're seeing something quite interesting going on in the military and the police. I think I mentioned earlier that the chief of the military, Sergio Orellana, who's someone who was promoted by Añez because he was a right-wing loyalist, he released a letter attacking Arturo Murillo. Apparently he made some sort of derogatory comment. But that's not the issue. The issue is looking for something with which to attack the government, distance himself, and to try and curry, you know, curry favour with the mass. Uh, I don't think the mass, are, mass are very aware about what his role is, and they'll be wanting to reorganise that. There are sections of the military that are very pro-mass, factions that are very, very... I myself witnessed when we were travelling with Andronic, a Senate candidate, Andronico Rodriguez, military checkpoints around the Tropic of Cochabamba, we get stopped and you know, the routine is that they search a car and then the soldier would come up and be like, oh, you're Andronico. We'll be like, you know, we'll be nervous. We're going to win. He's all his hands out. <laughs> you know, that was the kind of attitude there was amongst large sections of the rank and file of the military. So I think there's something, there's a base in which they can build a new military. And I think people would be demanding that. The police is a, is a much more difficult issue because the police is massively corrupt. That's true before Evo Morales, during Evo Morales, and even more so now. Police is massively corrupt, essentially apolitical, and will move to the side to sort of funds them. Uh, as in the, the coup last year, it was revealed that Camacho, Camacho's father, who's a millionaire, was the one that was offering bribes to the police to turn against Evo Morales. Um, but yeah, that will have to be restructured. Maybe that will happen naturally. Just today, it was announced that the chief of police, Ivan Rojas, who's the person that, uh, you know, appeared on TV every time a mass figure was arrested, he'd appear on TV sort of boasting about it, like, ah, oh, we're cracking down. He just decided to take his annual holiday. He requested his annual holiday. It's been granted. You know, who knows where he'll go? Maybe somewhere with a beach. I wanted to talk about one of the players in the media, which has influenced a lot post-coup in Bolivia. Because in the lead up to the election, when, I, when some uh, observers, electoral observers invited by the government from Spain arrived in the country, they were actually effectively doxxed online. Not only were their names and their personal information released, but the photos actually taken of them when they were at the border by Bolivian migra migration were published online, and it was specifically in this outlet, OK Diario. I'm wondering who exactly is behind that outlet, because that suggests there's very close coordination between it and the coup government. Yes, yeah, so OK, OK Diario is a magazine um, in Spain, run by leading figures of a party called Vox, which is a sort of neo-Francoist, neo-fascist organization, which sort of burst onto the political scene a few years ago in Spain. There's been a long-standing relationship between Vox, sort of neo-fascist forces in Spain, and Latin America, not just Bolivia. They've had people go to Venezuela, meeting with Juan Guaido, uh, Nicaragua, um, and Bolivia has been uh, a key base for them. They've been paid guests of Murillo. They've, um, and the most important sort of piece that they've had here is a journalist called Alejandro Entrambasaguas, who's this kind of crazy sort of young um, far-right journalist who shot to fame actually a couple of years ago when he, um, he was actually investigated for sort of harassing Pablo Iglesias' wife while she was pregnant. 
and um, he had a number of lawsuits around that. Then he came to Bolivia. Just after the coup, he came to Bolivia and was a kind of mouthpiece for the government. And what was really odd, it was not just that he was a sort of propaganda sort of person, activist, but that actually the state was feeding him uh, exclusives, sort of raw information that they themselves didn't want to publish and that Bolivia's mainstream media didn't want to publish, that they'd feed it to him or f fabricated uh, evidence that they'd you know, concocted in, in the police stations and things like this. They feed it to him, publish it through him, because of course, you know, once, once the mass won again, a foreign outlet can't be tried for things like defamation or, or fake news. Um, so there was, a, there was a very clear relationship between Arturo Murillo, the, ministry, the interior ministry, and this Spanish magazine, Vox. They, they pumped out a number of lies throughout this whole time. One, they said, it's Leonardo Losa, the candidate I mentioned earlier. This journalist wrote a story about how, oh, he thinks that um, they should replace the picture of Jesus with Evan Morales on religious marches. It's, it's complete fabrication. Uh, he accused the mass Senate, a mass uh, lawmaker, of having offshore accounts in Panama because he found an account with the same surname, but there, there was absolutely no relation, and, and, and the candidate proved that. Um, but that hasn't, that hasn't stopped him. He was hugely uh, popular in the Bolivian media. He'd be brought on as a guest on all of the mainstream media channels. He filed a number of lawsuits, which is a very strange thing to do, to go to another country which is not your own and, you know, just file out lawsuits against each and every person that you, that, that you don't like. Um, so there's, yeah, as I said, there's a strategy, there's a coordinated strategy by fascist forces in Spain to intervene in Latin America. Um, they hosted Juan Guaido when Juan Guaido was in Spain. So I think it's, it's something to keep an eye on. It's something that could deepen. In fact, in a lot of countries, they'll be hoping to sort of build their links. I'm sure there was a financial relationship between the Bolivian state and the party and, and Vox. So I'm sure they'll be looking to get their hooks in into other countries as well. I suppose it sums it up that it's not only the colonial Spain, yeah. but the fascists from that country. Yeah, yeah. I should add that there's a colonial element to this. Vox is an organization that does not refer to Latin America. They call it Hispano-America, you know, um, as if it's part of their uh, backyard, you know. Um, so there, there's, there's certainly a colonial approach to this. Uh, and in fact, just a couple of days ago, this journalist in Trambasaguas was on a Zoom sort of event amongst the far right in Spain where he's talking about how, well, the mass only won because their supporters have zero intellectual capacity. They've never seen a phone or they've never had internet, which is not true, by the way. Internet um, is available throughout the country. But, you know, this was the stereotypes he had. This is how he viewed Bolivian people. Um, and that was, that was what he was trying to do as a, as a journalist in Bolivia. One thing we've certainly noticed since arriving in Bolivia is that all of the media on television is pro-coup regime, pro-coup government. Do you think that will change now that MAS is, is staged to come back? Difficult, because this, uh, as much as the right would say, oh, Evo's a dictator, or even Western media would say he's authoritarian, the fact is that throughout Evo Morales' government, the media was the same. The same outlets, the same media, same journalists. At least before, there was a couple of state outlets that presented the government's point of view. That doesn't exist anymore. But all of the private media has always been extremely far to the right. 
um, throughout Evan Morales' government, and he never persecuted those media outlets, never jailed any journalists. Um, and I'm sure Arce wouldn't want to either. I think the most important uh, task for them will be supporting new independent media, building state media that puts the government's point of view across, but also alternative uh, media outlets, outlets like the one I work for, Radio Um in based in the tropical of Cochabamba, which started out as just a local media outlet for, for that region, local news. But once the state, out, state media outlets had disappeared, that became the only voice for, at a national level that could tell people what was going on from a point of view that wasn't you know, editorially pro-coup. So I think it would be really important to support those media projects. A number of other sort of uh, community radio stations have popped up. Uh, and I think it will be important to, I think in any country as well, how you can build a state media strategy, but which is, works alongside a sort of alternative media realm, which isn't tied to the state financially or otherwise, or through ownership, but which can work in tandem with the state media outlets. That's... Um, I hope that's something that can happen. It could be a very interesting project. Well, I know that all of us outside of Bolivia are also grateful for the work that you do and for your station. Is it possible for people in the United States and in other countries to support Kausachin News? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, uh, we, have, we, we have a Patreon. Um, the, the radio station itself is something that you can listen to on the internet. We have a number of listeners in the, United, in the Bolivian community in the United States, in Argentina and other countries. Um, and people, very, people really appreciate it because it's the only outlet. And even though we're the only outlet you know, during this whole year, I haven't had any resources. You know? uh, they used, the radio used to get some money from state advertisement that disappeared. Uh, the government seized the equipment, the sort of radio transmitting equipment in, uh, in some areas of Cochabamba, in some areas of Santa Cruz, in Beni. The radio used to reach the whole of the department of Beni. Now no one can listen to it because they seized the, the radio transmitters. They took a number of frequencies. And of course, there's no resources to replace that. Um, my own colleague, Landon Marca, at the radio station, he was, he was arrested while reporting on a union event a few months ago. He's still got the charges hanging over him. He's, the whole of his salary, which is, everyone at the radio earns similar to a Bolivian minimum wage. All of that salary is going on his, on his legal problems uh, following his persecution. So that's, that's the sort of conditions, you know, that we've all been working in. But it's, uh, you know, we wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> well, that's why I encourage all of our viewers to follow you in your work and support it in any way they can. Ali Bargas, it's been a pleasure. Keep up the good work. No, it's been a pleasure having this chat.